Hello and welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Sean. And I'm Brian. How you doing, Brian? Oh, I'm good, Sean, but busy, busy, busy. You know, like a bee, making honey day and night. What about you? Oh, you know, super as always, crazy busy with all the things I'm doing at the moment. Well, you know, Sean, it's May, it's May, the lusty month of May. It has been, it has been quite a month. Yeah, you will have just been on midweek. Yes, as we mentioned in the podcast um, last time, I have a new play opening. It's called We Wait in Joyful Hope um, at Theatre 503 here in London. And if all goes well, when when you hear this, I will have just been on BBC Radio 4, uh, which, if you don't know, is sort of like the NPR of the BBC, full of full of talk for middle-aged and elderly people. <laughs> middle-aged, educated homosexuals and their friends. Now, <laughs> and people who went to Oxford and Cambridge. And I can still listen to it anyway. <laughs> now, Brian, um, you've just been on a, a programme called Midweek. The format is one of these classic British panel things where they bring on five people who have, like, a play or a book or a art exhibit or something opening that, in theory, are unrelated. So it might be, like, a woman who's talking about the Syrian migrant crisis and a man who's into bird watching and an astrophysicist and me. So who knows? I mean, I could walk into that BBC studio and, I mean, anyone could be there. You know, it might be... A loom professor. <laughs> yes, it, it could be fascinating. So um, if you didn't catch it on Radio 4, if you're not a UK radio listener, I'm sure you can find it on the... BBC iPlayer or possibly on um, their podcast. They must have a podcast. So look up Radio 4 Midweek. So while I've been conquering the world of theatre and radio, Sean, you've been working in the audiovisual medium, haven't you? Yeah, let's get the uh, the promotions out of the way, as if it were sponsored by Squarespace, you know. <laughs> Be sure to enter the offer code BROAD. <laughs> this is strangely coincidental that the film we're doing today is uh, closely linked to some of the things that I'm doing at the moment. My good friends, my brethren, you should call them, at the Eagle uh, London, which is a great, iconic gay venue, which is going to some strength to strength with a brand new transformation. They've got me in to help them program weekly film nights uh, with a club night afterwards. And it's called Nitrate Cinema, and it's the best place in London to see the funnest, queerest, edgiest films that, that that I want to see. And if I want to see them, you want to see them too. <laughs> Basically, if you want Sean to program your Wednesday night cinema in a leather bar, then you should come to Night Trade Cinema. So it starts when? On the 25th? Yep. So our launch night is in conjunction with the Vitor Project. We are going to be screening John Walters' classic scratch and sniff, Polyester, followed by a little trashy little affair with the Eagle afterwards. Then it will continue on with screenings at the Eagle on Wednesday nights. Yeah, here's hoping. Oh, brilliant. Polyester, of course, is directed by John Waters. It is. Um, I have never seen Polyester, though I've been known to enjoy dropping a bit of Tab Hunter every once in a while. Dropping a Tab of Hunter? Yeah, (laughs) cracking open a nice can of Tab Hunter. But uh, it makes me feel divine. um, (laughs) And then you put on a mink stole. (laughs) I do. So as you can see from my... My panoply of uh, in-jokes. I'm certainly aware of John Waters and his his stylings. But Let's ne- call it an oeuvre. Yeah, his oeuvre. But I have never seen one of the films, and I'm, I'm eager to see Polyester, but that will not be the first John Waters film I'm going to see, because we're, we're about to watch one right now. We're about to watch one imminently, Brian. What's imminently. It, what's it called? It is what John Waters has described as his best film. Wait, really? Yes. Oh, he says that his best film is today's film, Serial Mom, 1994, Kathleen Turner. So, Sean, you are a major John Waters aficionado, is that right? In my kind of late teenage, early 20s years, apart from the Alien franchise, there was <laughs> another of that I knew an awful lot about, which was the works and films of John Waters. And I can totally understand why, because I was growing up in a fairly middle-of-the-road, small-town mentality. And John Waters' films are about the perversity of these, you know, middle classes. Now, of course, John Waters' films were 
highly censored and controversial at Kiernan's video shop, as we as we learned from Alan Flanagan. Yeah, they'd say, should we go to get another muck here? <laughs> <laughs> no. Why Why did they have it at all, then? Who no, would, they didn't who, have it. They didn't. No, they did. Oh, he tried to <gasps> rent cereal much. Okay. Go back to episode 12, everybody. Get that muck out of here. <laughs> Poor Alan didn't get to watch it. I, Alan, if you're listening... <laughs> Which just, I know you are. Yeah, and if you're listening, justice is about to be restored. We will watch Serial Mom in complete freedom. <laughs> um, so is that what you think you responded to in John Waters, the perversity that lurks underneath the provincial? There's something about his sense of artifice mm. that is so intoxicating. Mm. The brilliance of how ludicrous everything is, and yet you want to find the reality in it. Because you know that... In these early films with Divine and Mink Stoll and David Lockery and all those people he worked with, they did live a little fucked up life in Baltimore. And it kind of gives, I think, all those weirdo kids who start discovering his films the capability to be like, wow, I can be as weird as I want to be and also be cool. Did um? Do you remember what your first John Waters movie was and where you saw it? Yeah, my first ever John Waters film I watched by complete accident. This is like being in therapy, by the way. I haven't thought about these things in ages. The first John Waters film I ever saw was totally by accident. It was the second half of the film Pecker. I, I think John Waters' 90s phase is a lot more palatable than his uh, 70s and 80s phase. Right. Um, which isn't to say that, like, it's not good. It's just that he was quite established at this stage. They had bigger casts. They had more money. And so in many ways, they became quite mainstream. Yeah, I think having not seen any of the films, my take on it from hearing things is sort of that he sold out in a way. But you're, I'm, you're happy to be proved wrong. But I sort of felt like the early ones with Divine had these great avant-garde underground reputations and then some of the ones from like hairspray onward yeah maybe were a softening of his of his radical aesthetic but well, well considering that hairspray and crybaby became broadway musicals yeah i mean and had bigger name name movie stars in them right well i mean hairspray was a surprise because ricky lake was nobody but johnny depp was established by the time crybaby yeah. came out but then he's gone on to work with people like um Melanie Griffith and obviously Kathleen Turner, who we, who we just mentioned, right? He would always mix, wouldn't he, still, some of these established movie stars with, like, random cameos by people like Patty Hearst. Am I right? Yeah, Patty Hearst is in more than one of his films. Yeah. Tracy Lords is also... Who's that? Tracy Lords was a famous underage porn star. Oh. Yeah. The Brent Corrigan of her day. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, that's a movie I can't wait to see. <laughs> The great thing about John Waters that I've always loved is that, like every true intelligent homosexual, he has a sensibility for the female, you know, for the for the actress. Female trouble. Yeah. And, like, I mean, Divine, Divine in her female identity was obviously the, the, the grand dame of his films until her passing. So, and in later films, he did kind of latch on to actresses and kind of... And in many ways, kind of gives them a chance to do something that they probably won't ever get a chance to do in their careers before or after. Taking Kathleen Turner, who we're about to see, what do you think her response is when she gets a call from John Waters saying, would you like to be in my next movie? Like, do you think they weigh the risks of it with the, with the fun of it? Well, I know for a fact that, like, many actresses, who I don't know their names, were offered this role. And um, this was something that many female actresses didn't want to take. We've been focusing so much on the quintessential 90s actresses, right? Who we associate with the decade. And Kathleen Turner, I do not, right? No. Kathleen Turner is one of the quintessential actresses of the 80s. Yes. And all her big roles, Body Heat, Pritzi's Honor, Romancing the Stone. Accidental Tourists. Peggy Sue Got Married. These are all like some of the biggest movies of the 80s. And is, is it fair to say that she kind of sat out the 90s, at least in terms of successful movies. Well, she had to sit out of love due to rheumatoid arthritis. Oh. I, mean, I said that wrong. Rheumatoid. Rheum, yeah. She had to sit a lot of it out due to rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, God. <laughs> that I have to say, that okay. word is uniquely... That, that phrase is uniquely set up to make an Irishman... 
Trip, I'm say it again. You can, you can include these. Rheumatoid arthritis. Hey, yes. you got it, you got it. I don't slip into the dental teas often, but you know, <laughs> I I cannot deny who I am, where I'm from. <laughs> I am what I am. So, okay, so you think that's part of what drew John Waters to want to work with her? A kind of like career resuscitation or turning a new direction? For some directors, getting an actor or an actress at a point in which they're kind of not really famous anymore and doing something really interesting with them because, hey, what can you lose, is something that we have seen time and again in, you know, Hollywood movies. I mean, think about Ellen Burstyn in Requiem for a Dream, oh, for example. I try not to. I know, but it's a good example nonetheless. Think about Bette and uh, Joan in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, yeah. if, we're, if we're going down that. The kind of camp resuscitation of a grand dame. In a, in a new register. Uh, like I said, what can you lose? <laughs> Only the blues. Which I'm sure Kathleen Turner was laughing her arse off on that set. So let's talk a little bit about the film. So Brian, you've never seen it, but do you know anything about it? Based on the title and the poster alone, my guess is that it's a film about a mom, an average American suburban housewife who seems picture perfect, and is actually a serial killer. Am I right? Yeah, you're right. Basically, <laughs> you're right. And do you think it's a drawn-out murder mystery where it's revealed that she's the killer at the very last scene? No, I suspect it's probably the kind of thing that she has, like, a psychic break early on, and then outrageous, dark comedy ensues. Well, that's a fairly accurate <laughs> guess, I think. How would you categorize this film in terms of genre? Is it... A satire? Is it a, a black comedy? How would you describe it? It's pastiche. It's darkly comic. It's a satire. It's it's all the things you could associate with John Waters, especially around this time as well. And um, what I love about John Waters' films is that even though they're completely outrageous, many of them—no, I wouldn't say all of them—but uh, many of them tend to be this kind of uh, wry commentary about one's own position in the social fabric. It, it's very much the what will the neighbours say kind of attitude. And we see that in films like uh, Hairspray. We see it in Cry Baby a lot. We see it in this film. We see it in Pecker. Somebody is positioning themselves as a social outcast. And we, have, we approach a sense of trepidation about how they're going to be received. It was the breakup of the family in polyester. In this one, it's killing. I have this feeling that it's going to remind me of something like To Die For, which we already reviewed which because of the homicidal element because of like the small town because of the kind of all-american archetype who's actually psychotic is would you am i am i thinking down the right path here i mean in retrospect we really should have done those two episodes back to back but hey what can you do we just made a very interesting uh, insight haven't we um how do you feel about kathleen turner like other than in serial mom do you have any relationship with her work um, yeah, actually, I do. I mean, in my family, The Accidental Tourist is one of our favourite films. Um, but also, Kathleen Turner is just so, like, enrapturing as a person. Can you, can you not look at that woman and look at that and hear that voice? That and husky, husky voice. It's like, there's, of course, the reason why her career dried up in the 1990s, because well, there's just not the roles for her, because she's too damn interesting. Yeah, and if you look at the trajectory of it, I mean, she was a sex bomb yeah. right in the 80s i mean body heat was her first film she was a sultry femme fatale and she also had a skill for comedy obviously which was on display in a lot of her big hits but she was the man with two brains was her second film yeah yeah and then i guess you know as she transitioned into middle age she became more of a of a diva of a kind of i mean i think her reputation now when she shows up in cameos and things is she's like a Glamorous ball buster. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how I would describe it. Some old lush, you know. But John Waters said about Kathleen Turner, "You never want to have a martini with anybody else." He says she takes a, a sip of it and goes, "Ha!" <laughs> and um, and of course she uh, got huge acclaim when she appeared on Broadway in uh, "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf?" I'm sure she chewed that scenery and knocked back quite a few. Uh, you think? Quite a few drinks. Yeah. yeah? Um, okay, well, I'm getting psyched up to watch this. Is there anyone else in the movie that I should know about? Um, who, who are the other family members? Your dad's in it, Sam Morrison. <laughs> For anyone who's not met my father, Peter Mullen, 
he looks a lot like Sam Watterson, particularly given that Sam Watterson was the prosecutor in Law and Order. <laughs> so, okay, so my dad is in it. Great. Yeah, you... uh, Brian, uh, I think there's a serial killer in our family. Uh, that's kind of how he plays it. <laughs> okay. Uh, Matthew Lillard, do you remember him? Yeah, from Scream. Yeah, who I always thought was kind of sexy. Yeah, in he, a now, funny way. He, no, he's sexy in a homicidal kind of way, which is why I always liked him. I've yeah. always liked his kind of voice. Ricky Lake is in it again. Great. Pat. Oh, oh, isn't Suzanne Summers in Suzanne it? Suzanne Summers, the thigh master, whatever Did her name she get is. to wear a leotard? I can't remember. The thigh Master, did you ever have one of those? The thigh master. <laughs> did you have a thigh master? No. Oh, so so those thighs were perfectly natural, Sean. That's that's not Suzanne's work. No, I just use butter. <laughs> okay, so there's gonna be glorious campy cameos. There's gonna be ho homicides. There's gonna be skewering of American suburbia. It's gonna be great zingers and one-liners. This Ooh, is John Waters' film, after all. Okay, uh, and he also um, when this film came out, I think it came out the time the, the OJ yeah. killing happened. There are aspects of this film that imitate life before it happened, uh, which as John Waters said, you can't you you can't write parody fast enough in the USA because before you know it, Donald Trump is running for president. Oh, I don't, did he really say that? No, he didn't. But that's just a perfect example of how, of how American culture works. And um, this was in the era of court TV. Yeah. Uh, like I said, O.J. Simpson. What was that woman who cut off her husband's penis? Oh, yeah. Lorraine Bobbitt. Yes. Yeah. So an awful lot of these things like that he is very much uh, inspired by uh, feature in, in the picture. And I guess like to finish off, there's many reasons why I love John Waters, and one of them is, of course, that he had as much admiration and obsession about movies and pop culture and youth culture that, of course, he appeals to, like, anyone with queer sensibilities. And I doubt you're going to love every aspect of Serial Mom, but I think you're going to have a lot of fun with it. Okay. So let's pitch our tent. I want to get to this camp. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pitching a tent right now. Oi, oi, the thigh master. Yes. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. We're going to watch Serial Goodbye Mom. Goodbye forever. <laughs> no, just for a few moments. We'll see you soon. Officer, I'm sorry, but we don't allow gum in this house. Sorry, ma'am. Uh, we're investigating obscene phone calls and mail threats to a certain Mrs. Uh, Dottie Hinkle. I know Dottie. She lives right down the street. Could you take a look at this and, and tell us of anyone who might be responsible? I should warn you, this note contains a uh, language. Oh, my. That, that is the limit. Let me see. No, son. This is a matter for adults. Officers, I have never even said the P word out loud, let alone have written it down. No woman would. Officers, life doesn't have to be ugly. See, look at the birds out there. Listen to their call. Hooey. 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 Christ, that one was Beaver Cleaver's mother. Welcome back to part two. We've just finished watching Serial Mom. Um, Brian, before I ask you your opinion, let's just do a very basic summary of the plot. Cocksucker! Cocksucker! Pussy! <laughs> Motherfucker! <laughs> Have to get it out of the way. Anyway... Very quotable serial mom, you'll hear that as we go on. In the first half, Brian basically guessed the plot of the film. I'm going to give a little bit more meat to that description. Um, Beverly Sutphin is a wonderful homemaker mother of two. She lives in beautiful suburbia, and as it turns out, she's also a homicidal killer. The, the targets of her killings tend to be people who offend her, have poor manners, or are generally just not upstanding members of the community. As well as people who've witnessed 
her killings of the aforementioned people. Ah, yes, of those two. <laughs> Beverly continues to kill people until she's brought to a very sensationalist trial, not too dissimilar to a very sensational trial by a man named O.J. Simpson that was happening at the same time. Art imitates life once again. Brian? What do you think of the film? First reactions. My first reaction was it was very, very funny. And uh, <laughs> hilariously, I think I laughed the most at just like random lines and random character names. Can we pause to say that the fact that her name is Sutfin is very funny? Well, what's Sutfin? I don't know. It's just a funny name. So people named like Sutfin, Dottie Hinkle, Mr. Pickles, and the uh, prosecutor, Timothy Naselrod. <laughs> a future pseudonym, perhaps? You look like a Timothy Naselrod. <laughs> there were one-liners and all sorts of Sorts of wonderful 90s references to things like the Franklin Mint. Anybody of my generation, if you're listening to this, you remember infomercials on daytime TV for like collector's plates from the Franklin Mint. And that was the kind of middle class suburban conformist kind of thing that is being sent up constantly in this movie. Don Knotts features on at one point on a... Is it like an it's a portrait? It's a portrait of him, of a painting that yeah. they find at a jumble sale. Eventually, I want to delve deeper into the analysis, if there is one, the sort of social psychosis of American life. But I'm interested, Sean, you've seen this movie multiple times? Yeah, four is a multiple, isn't it? But four that's... is indeed a multiple. Yeah, so at least four times I've seen it. And so did this viewing leave you with as much delight as in the past? Did you notice anything new and exciting watching it with, with me? <laughs> uh, Franklin Mint was a real <laughs> revelation to me. Um, but the thing about John Waters films around this time, his 90s films especially, um, is that they're just so damn enjoyable. Yeah, it's subversive. Yeah, it's edgy. But, I mean, ultimately the things that comes through is that it's a laugh, and it's a laugh riot. Franklin Mint would be a really good drag king name. Feel free to use it if there are any drag kings that listen to us. Yeah, yeah, US-specific drag kings. <laughs> so, um, I mean, one thing that is I really, that became clear to me from the beginning was that we just had to throw logic out the window. Like, I mean, this film makes To Die For, which has similar themes of sensationalism and crime and sex and small-town life. I mean, it makes it seem like Italian neorealism in comparison with this. I mean, there is... There is no logic or verisimilitude no. to this film in the slightest. Well, and that's fine, you know. Well, I mean, verisimilitude is, you know, your own suspension of disbelief. And you can totally suspend disbelief in this film. Yeah, it's, but it's it's a, it's an artificial world. Everything about it is artificial. Right? Yeah. And, and the performances are camped up to the max yeah. across the board. However, that being said, there's this tongue-in-cheek kind of title at the beginning that says this is all based on true events. Well, that's just typical John Waters, isn't it? Because, you know, how to make something m more untrue, tell everybody that it's real. Yeah, and it's also playing in this whole notion, which we've been talking about in the past, about, like, the true crime trend of the 90s, the obsession with serial killers. I mean, they do reference things like this film, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yeah, this is probably the third kind of serial killer film we've had in this podcast. Mm. You know, out of, what, 16, 17 episodes so far... This is the third one. I mean, those being Basic Instinct. First well, of all. we said Basic Instinct is a serial killer film. It is essentially she kills more. You know, she kills multiple people. Of course, Copycat and this one. Uh, of course, we also in our spare time we also watched Silence of the Lambs. We nicked there was an obsession with this serial killer phenomenon in the nineties. I'm not. I'm not quite sure why that was. But well, at one point, they they say in the um, court case of this film, they say that. Um, serial Mom is the new addition to your um, deck of serial killer playing cards. The, these were people who became celebrities and they kind of became this rogues gallery yeah. of names that we all know. Well, I don't know if that's a real thing, but it is featured in Adam's Family Values. I don't know if you've ever seen it. In which they have like the trading cards of serial killers. Yeah. The idea of someone being driven by mania or insanity to kill a series of people... Um, that's definitely what Beverly Sutfin is doing in this film. Because, I mean, the other thing, and this is about throwing logic out the window, I mean, she kills people for the most random of reasons. I mean, it's it's nearly motiveless some of the times why she kills people. 
And it's also not entirely clear to me. And again, I'm I'm I I can't treat this film with the same laser-like uh, analysis of logic that I often bring to movies because it's just it, it that's not the kind of film it is. But do you think it's implied that her killing begins at the beginning of the film? Yeah, you asked this question to me already, didn't you? I mean, like, what has her life been like up until this point, or should we just not care? I don't think we need to care. I mean, I think her killing starts when the film starts. Yeah, because we, we see her with the family at the breakfast table. We, we haven't said much about the other members of the family, so who are her children and her husband? Well, her husband is your dad, Sam Borson. Yes. And her children are... Uh, Chip and Misty. Chip and Misty, played by Matthew Lillard and... Uh, Ricky Lake. Ricky Lake. It's so funny, because like I said, Matthew Lillard was one of the kill- killers in Scream, which came two years later. And he is so serial mom's son. Like he, he has he, this maniacal yeah. look in his eyes, and I really loved it. I don't know what ever happened to him, but he was perfect for Scream, and he was perfect for this. Sadly, he was he was underused in Kenneth Branagh's Love's Labor's Lost. I don't know if anybody... I, I was one of the three people who saw that. The other two were with me at the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, yes. So, yeah, he definitely is serial mom's son, because he works in a video shop. Not unlike Kiernan's, I suppose, although perhaps a bit more palatial. And he um, is obsessed with horror films, right? He and his friends watch gory movies. And that's that's his thing. He's like, all-American boy turned on by violence. Whereas Ricky Lake is like just a bundle of hormones. Every man who walks past her, she's just like exuding sexual arousal at all times. Yeah, and this is typical John Waters. It's like, take an archetypal psychological aspect and rank it up to 11. Yeah. And so, you know, we have this like, slightly parodic version of the nuclear family and there's mom Beverly Sutphin who's like perfect with everything and she's almost obsessive compulsive about certain details you know she hates all swear words she can't spare herself to say the p word or the brown word <laughs> the brown word Chip. I, I love the i love that phrase the brown word have you ever, have you ever heard it before i've never heard it oh, really? although there was one line that she says where chip says he hates something and she says never say you hate something chip that's a very serious word that is literally something that was said to me as a child i was told never to say that i hate something well i think that's a family standard isn't it it's interesting Good families. I've certainly now uh, on this podcast gotten over that totem and taboo. (laughs) I I hate things all the time. That's not the first time you've mentioned that Freudian text, you know. (laughs) But I think the first sign that that she may be a killer is we see her obsessing over swatting a fly, don't we, during the breakfast scene. And then who shows up to sort of disrupt domestic bliss or two police uh, officers? Well, this is the thing, you know, you wanted some kind of analysis. You said, does she start killing before the film? She's definitely making obscene phone calls. Yeah, that's the thing. So they're, they're investigating these obscene phone calls to the Sutphin's neighbor, Dottie Hinkle, yeah. played by the brilliant Mink Stoll, who I just think, like, she's always the best thing in John Waters' films. She has a face. I don't know what that face is about. I had to ask you if she was a drag queen yeah. because she has a drag queen's name. Yeah, she's like she's a biological female. No, she's amazing, but yeah. she also has the most insane like hairline hairline that looks like a wig, yeah. but isn't. She I mean, she's amazing. Well, when when you know, we'll watch female trouble in our own time, and she is like beyond brilliant in that film. So basically, Mrs. Sutphin. <laughs> like seems to take great pleasure out of just calling Dottie and using this deep voice and saying obscene things to her. Yeah, well, we know why she did that because uh, Dottie Hinkle took her parking space very uh, uh, unceremoniously one day. Oh, at, so that's what set it all shop, off. No doubt. That's what set it. There were no stop and shops in Baltimore. No, babe. no, it was probably the Piggly Wiggly. James Mowed could tell us <laughs> what it <laughs> Listener is. Listener Jay Mowed. <laughs> so, um. Great. So that, I mean, she has a history of, like, of these submerged desires. I mean, this movie is very much about the desire that is submerged to act out against the conformity of suburban life um, bursting yeah. forth in kind of unsociable ways. Yeah, right? and that's not a new um, theme in, no. the soci- in the kind of the family drama. It's all about repression boiling over. But it's just handled with such... Over the top glee. flair and glee. Yeah. Yes, yes, gleeful. Glee is a good word for Kathleen Turner's facial expressions through most of this, which I think I described as cartoonish. I mean, she's just literally smirking and mugging and smiling through the entire film. Well, she had a great time on this picture. Really? I mean, who wouldn't? 
So the first person she kills is the appropriately named Mr. Stubbins. Who is the teacher at Chip School. Yeah? Yeah. The teacher says some not particularly nice things about her son's obsession with horror movies. She runs him over with a car. Um, not just any car. Her car. Yeah, her car. <laughs> which is, of course, the, the, the thing that leads the police to suspect that it might be her because they've witnessed a car like that running over the guy. And as the killings increase... The whole town seems to be abuzz with rumors that she is indeed a killer and people are looking askance at her, skeptical at her, at the jumble sale, at church, at all these different places, including increasingly her family, right? I mean, I think that was one of the interesting things is like husband Sam Waterston and the kids are never quite sure whether mom is killing or not killing. Mm. And it's also not clear whether they're excited by the fact that she's a killer, scared by the fact, yeah. guilty. That's a part of it that I quite liked, actually, um, which is you never know where they, are, where they are with her, but there is this sense of, like, underlying terror the entire time. And there's that amazing sex scene between her oh and Oh, my God. Wilson. Yes, do you want to describe that? That's, that's probably right after she's killed for the first time, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and then he goes to, she's, also, she's so turned on by the killing that she has this most, like, ceiling-thumping sex. Yeah, which wakes up the kids, and then we have a little bit of a... Freudian primal scene as they walk down the yes, hall. Yes, they were carrying their feces. <laughs> they walked down we, the we, hall. We had a quick analysis of the... What was it called again? I should know this. The anal stage. Anal retentive stage? I don't know. The anal Where, stage. Where's Dr. Justin Hunt when you need him? So yes, um, eventually Dad begins to get worried when he looks under her bed and discovers that she has a host of reading material that's all about, like, the biography of Ted Bundy. Yeah, but she has more than that. She has audio recordings of from Ted Bundy. Do you remember? sent to her. Yeah. It's John Waters' cameo in the film. It's his voice. He says, like, oh, Beverly, I'm I'm going crazy here in, in prison, you know, basically. <laughs> yes. So, um, I mean, we don't need to go through all the people she killed. Do we have favorite moments? Well, let's just say what the killings themselves are. Okay. Okay, so we'll go in order and not say, well, that's not, who cares why she kills them? Okay? <laughs> the second killing is the, probably the most gory, really. It, it is gory, really. It's where she impales her daughter's uh, ex-boy, I suppose, in the bathroom of a jumble sale. It's the boy who's, like, been flirting with Misty, but not treated her yeah, very who, well. Yeah, who, who ditches her for Tracy Lords. I mean, that's fair enough. What I found striking is that the person who witnesses that killing is a man who is in the neighboring cubicle in the men's room watching what goes on through like a peephole or a glory hole. So like she is not the only person who has repressed desires. Like other people throughout this community are spying on each other, doing like quote unquote perverse acts. She's the only one who, who brings that perversity out to the surface and, and acts on it so extravagantly. Yeah, and it's also worth saying that this is what helps her in, in the courtroom scenes because every witness is an unreliable, you know, stoner or pervert or nut job or whatever. <laughs> yes, and she can unleash that. Yeah. So in that bathroom when she kills that boyfriend. So she basically she impales him with like a, an antique fireplace rod or poker poker yeah. <laughs> but it goes through him and, and like it, it you know his liver is still attached to it you know Ugh. and um she has to like kind of get her off the poker and then later on was it isn't her what's the what's that woman's name again? mrs ackerman you remember the the neighbor <laughs> mrs ackerman says oh beverly you've got doo-doo on your foot <laughs> and it's like this little remnant of gore that's still, that's like lying on her, on her uh, sneaker so she kills him uh, she kills the nosy and annoying people who, um... Begin to suspect her. Yeah. Now, but why does she kill? She kills them because, so Beverly, hoo-wee, loves starlings, loves watching her birds. Hoo-wee, <laughs> And, um, one morning when she's trying to look at her starlings, she, the, the, her birds are disturbed by, um, the, na- the nosy neighbours. So she goes around to their house and she looks at the window and she sees them, you know, very slovenly tearing into chickens, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what and did Brian say? No, Brian so, dozed so, off a bit. Brian dozed off a bit. So I, I, you know, she kills. She's she gets a flashback to them to the to the birds, and and she kills. She proceeds to kill them with the, with the scissors and by knocking them an air conditioning unit on on their heads. And um, Brian was a bit confused as to why why she killed them because if, I won't be watching this. Brian says to me, "Are they eating starlings?" I was like, "No, Brian, they're not eating starlings." <laughs> 
<laughs> it's interesting. Um, as we talk about Beverly Sutphin, I'm wondering if she actually her her true. Uh, motivation for all this was quite ecological because she seems to be to love bird watching and also to love recycling. These are two yeah, passions of hers. But she doesn't kill the woman for not recycling. Remember? No, I know, but she's she's sort of a, a proto eco warrior. Yeah, well, the whole thing about Beverly is that she upholds like common values. I mean, John, it's an inconvenient truth. We just have to say. Yes, it. very good, Melissa Etheridge. Thank you very much. And um, but she upholds values of the community, and so you know her victims are people who deserve to die, basically. Um, okay, so that's that's four we got down. Okay, the police do this like the entire police force trails them, so they're driving in their station wagon because they, they 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 only suspect her, and they're waiting for one piece of evidence to like. Yeah, <laughs> so they're all. Her. It's this slow car chase, which I mean, frankly, was ama- It reminded me to an amazing degree of the white Bronco slowly driving up the freeway with with masses of police cars, and it's insane that this was made less than a year before this actually happened, right? Yeah. Uh, that actually Startling. happened. Yeah. So in in church, she sneezes on a baby. <laughs> it's not quite as simple as that. She sneezes, and the snot flies from her nose onto the face of a sleeping baby who then wakes up with a crash and starts crying. But because everybody in the church is so on edge because they know she's there. Sarah mom, Sarah mom. The whole place flips out. And, and it, chaos ensues and she goes on the run and the police chase her and she ends up in the video store. Yeah. Um, we said we were going to detail every killing. But no, but I just, well, the thing I like is in the video store, the woman who she ends up killing who is because she won't rewind the videos, which I, it's amazing to me, like, this is a flashback. I remember rewinding yeah, the VHS. Of course I do. I, yeah, I but... To, I, and, you know, I had a few back that were unrewound, and I felt terrible about it. What do you think the Kiernans did? Rewound them. God, Sean, <laughs> think of all the labor that well, you put actually, those poor family. I don't think they did, because there was many times where I would put a video into my cassette, and it would be at the very end of it. Typical, typical Longford laxity. Well, they're, they're beasts, absolute beasts in Longford. <laughs> That's beasts for those who are... So this lady hasn't rewound, but an even worse crime is the fact that her taste in movies runs entirely... She's a sort of single older woman with a dog or a cat, and she just likes to rent, like, family movies, and she's she's killed by Beverly while watching Annie yeah. and singing along. Okay, and then that proceeds to the next killing, which is the last killing, which is poor old... Jimmy, Billy, no, Scotty, Scotty who doesn't wear a seatbelt. Scotty, who doesn't wear a seatbelt, but sure gossips a lot for someone who doesn't wear a seatbelt. <laughs> and um, he witnesses her through the window, and she knows she has to finish him off. And that actually is where it really starts to become, I think, a commentary, not just on this, on this one woman's repressed desires, but on a whole society... That is, on some level, baying for blood and gore. Yeah, but getting off on her, well, know, acting it out. Well, because she chases Jimmy into a local ven- music venue, right? And there's a, a local music venue. And in the middle of the day, there's a girl punk rock band called the Camel Lips performing. Uh, you know what that refers to, don't you? Camel Lips? Yeah. It's probably something vulgar. You're probably, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you off mic, okay? Okay. <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> okay, no, just kidding. Um, so the camel lips are performing. She comes in. She lights Scotty on fire. He walks out on the stage, and the entire crowd, including the camel lips, while they perform, is like cheering while a man is being immolated to death. But that is so punk. Don't you understand? Yeah, but I guess what, what I'm saying is like, it's not a question of society being horrified by these killings. They actually are complicit, and I think that's ultimately... Just like American society is with all murder. Well, there you go. So, I'm so glad to be from a country that actually abolished the death penalty. I didn't know that. Yeah, we were the first country in the world to do it. Wow. Abolish it. Well, I'm proud. It's proud I am that I'm Irish, Katie Scarlett O'Hara. So anyway, um, so this is what eventually leads her to being caught and and this fabulous courtroom scene where she decides to represent herself and through a series of ingenious maneuvers basically makes the credibility of each and every witness appear to be questionable. Mrs. Hinkle, do you drink? No, I don't. So you were not drunk when you received those allegedly obscene phone calls? I certainly was not. Now, you mean to tell me that the day I came over to Mrs. Ackerman's, the day you claim you recognized my voice, you were not drinking? One beer with lunch is hardly drinking. 
So you do drink? Socially. I'll have a beer. So you admit you just lied? No, I don't, bitch! Watch your mouth, Mrs. Hinkle. Did you see that? She just said fuck you to me! Let the record show I am merely standing here. Fuck you too, you fool. I'm warning you, Mrs. Hinkle, one more obscenity and I'm gonna charge you with contempt of court. Mrs. Hinkle, are you insane? No, I'm not, you motherfucker! Mrs. Hinkle, I find you guilty of contempt and I sentence you to a thousand dollar fine and five days in jail. I mean, we've just watched all 10 episodes of The People vs. O.J. Simpson, and while this is in a completely ridiculous register, like, it's the exact same legal strategy that Johnny Cochran uses to get O.J. off the hook, right? Mm. It's basically saying, look, there's all this evidence, there's all these witnesses, but how can we seed all this doubt and, and sort of distract with bringing in all these, these other issues into, into the mix? So it... It was totally prescient, but what does that say about the early 90s? I mean, what was happening where death and murder and, you know, public punishment became such a hot topic for people? Well, I think we've talked about this in the past. The 90s were this period that was in between the end of the Cold War and the millennium. And at least in America, you had this sense of enormous prosperity, but without a lot of sense of mission. I mean, I would wrap the whole Clinton presidency into this, that like... Bill Clinton was an enormously talented politician who I would say had absolutely no values, right? In the sense that, like, they got into power, but what was his agenda there other than, like, pumping up the economy and, like, maintaining power? You know, they often say that when, a, when an empire reaches its height, all we get is, like, bread and circuses, right? You know? And I just feel like America in the 90s was that empire adrift where people had nothing really to focus on except sensationalist stories, not just OJ and Pamela Smart that we've already talked about, but things like the president himself coming on a little blue dress, you know, and filleting his intern with a cigar. I mean, this was the stuff that was considered of vital importance. While meanwhile, in the rest of the world, you know, killings were happening in Rwanda and genocidal issues in Kosovo and the former Yugoslavia. But don't, forget, Sorry. don't forget the Good Friday Agreement as well. <laughs> Let me step off of my soapbox here. No, but I, mean, I really think that's part of what the 90s were all about. No, I totally agree with you. I mean, like, that that was American intervention. There was no threat to America itself. But it's really depressing, Brian, when you say that. It's really depressing. <laughs> and that those were my formative years, yes. dear readers, listeners. So let's just talk about some of the, the funnier aspects of the film. What do you think? What did you think of Kathleen Turner's performance? Because this is a podcast about actresses. I think she's perfect for playing a homicidal killer. I mean, she started off as a femme fatale in Body Heat. Um, but her, you know, her voice, the way she twists it in those phone calls, you know that there's someone believably homicidal beneath that. I mean... I think it's a gonzo performance. I mean, it's like up there with the way that like a drag queen would perform in one of these movies. So even though I mean, she's... mean, yeah, well, divine. But that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, even though she's an established Oscar-nominated movie star and a very good actress, here she is totally bonkers and I think throwing all notions of like character consistency out the window. I mean, you compare this with what Nicole Kidman does in To Die For... Nicole Kidman is very heightened, but I think one of the things we were super impressed by was that she somehow made all the inconsistent parts of Suzanne Stone feel like a believable human in some strange way, whereas Beverly Sutphin is literally like the most placid housewife and then the most aggressive, violent person, and it's like there's a psychic break, you know what I mean? Which I think is a, is a strong choice. It's just so bold and against any notion of like developed rounded character yeah but there's no developed rounded yeah that, that's what i mean and that's why Stifer works so well because everybody plays it straight apart from nicole kidman yeah you know but she it's not that she's she's like mugging as you'd say yeah it's just that she's in a kind of a different plane and the, this whole film is on another plane and i i wanted to make the comparison between this and american psycho the the brad easton ellis novel primarily, but also the, the film with Christian Bale. I mean, they feel like they're diagnosing American life in a similar way. I mean, that's looking more at the masculine end of it and capitalism, right? 
that capitalism has these energies underneath it. But I think what's so striking when you read that book is how there is absolutely no explanation for why and how Patrick Bateman is a killer. And in one chapter, he seems to just be your standard run-of-the-mill, square-jawed businessman. And then suddenly in the next chapter, he's killing someone and he doesn't have a memory of it. And Beverly Sutphin is kind of like the feminine version of that, right? She literally just alternates. There's no, like, ramping up. It's like when she sees someone wearing white shoes after Labor Day at the end of the film, she just snaps and goes and killing ensues. When anyone breaks a social code, when anyone pisses her off, she snaps and goes. Those energies just arise. It's kind of saying that American life is teetering on this edge of psychosis at all times. Do you think that hinders the film at, at any point? Like, because... The, it makes it really fun. It makes it really fun. Like, the ending of the film is very abrupt. There is no real conclusion, because the whole conclusion is that she gets... She, she you know, she's released. She's she found not and guilty. And she's cheered. The, I mean, yeah, the jury seems to... Yeah, the jury... Feels that she's exonerated. The entire courtroom erupts in applause. There's going to be a TV miniseries made of her life, which is going to star Suzanne the Summers. great Suzanne Summers and Jason Priestley. I'm not sure who he would play. Oh, the Sam Morrison character, of course. <laughs> but, um, you know, so how the film ends is that um, Suzanne Summers tries to move her to her left side and Serial Mom says, Suzanne Summers, this is my bad side. And the film ends with the, the song Daybreak by Barry Manilow, which but plays... That's a... Double entendre in a way, and that's an amazing line to be the last line because it's her it's her bad side in the photograph, yeah. which is a thing you might expect a sort of well kempt woman to know that this is her bad side. But it's also she has a bad side, and it literally is like this two sides of her that just flip and alternate back and forth. No, I mean that's all fine, but I mean yeah. talk about a conclusion to a picture though. It's implied that even though she's gotten off the family kind of suspects that she's still guilty because yeah. they say... That's a great moment, What actually. are we going to do now? Yeah. She's going to come back home. And Ricky Lake says to her new boyfriend, let's just try to not piss her off yeah. because who knows how this might erupt again. Yeah, and that's, that, that is actually one of the more chilling elements of it in comparison, once again, to, to OJ. Because, you know, obviously OJ, you know, the people who were his family wanted him to get off, but... You know, the Robert Kardashian character. At least no, sorry, has played the, the, the Ross tra- character. The tragedy of Ross yeah. is performed by David Schwimmer. Yeah, poor With David. his Susan Sontag style streak of grey. Yeah, no, but he was very important in that uh, yeah. TV show because he was somebody who, you know, I'm on your side. And then he knows, no, this guy's a killer. He begins to doubt. Yeah, he begins to doubt. And uh, at the same time, he needs to he needs to save face. He can't break during yeah. the trial. yeah. And, you know, neither can her family. And that's the whole kind of like, yeah. you know, where do we go from here? Yeah, it's a great ending in the sense that it's just implying yeah. this will just continue. And in the sense, all of society has these urges lurking beneath yeah. it. And it, you sense the gleeful, you know, mind of John Waters saying this conformist suburban world that has been presented to us for all these many decades is just a screen of blandness under which perversity bubbles you know which is not unlike some of david lynch it, if we, i mean no not, not at all it's not unlike douglas sirk in its own no. way where well, desire is a huge fan of yeah, sirk. desire kind of simmers under the picture postcard i mean but are we actually reading into it too much i mean we are clearly are but i don't think so at all i mean it's I mean, very John fun is a very intelligent person but i mean like should we just take it for face value? He's trying to say something about society in America. I don't think... I mean, it's it's also enjoyable and fun. Um, I liked my first John Waters movie. I, I have a feeling that I would really, really admire more of the edginess of the early films. But something about the gloss of this one and the fact that it had some recognizable actors, I think actually makes it work because... It sort of feels like a Hollywood movie. Yeah, no, I And looks agree. like a Hollywood movie. And I, the fact that they then say cocksucker and yeah. pussyville or whatever the pussy hell. Pussy willow. A pussy. I know what a pussy willow is, but at what point doesn't she say, like, is this the pussy residence or something? What did she uh, say? Is this one, two, pussy way? Yeah, that's it. Well, if we've whetted your appetite for a bit of waters, then um, as Sean said earlier in the podcast, I believe, 
on the 25th of May here in London, you can see Polyester! Polyester! At the Vito Project at the Cinema Museum, followed by a divine-themed club night at the Eagle. Is yes, that right, my Eagle brethren. Yes. I'm back. <laughs> the Eagles are flying to the airy. Wasn't Hitler's bunker called the Eagle's Nest? I don't want to know. I'm trying to disassociate myself from Hitler once again. Um, well, our next film is also going to be an examination of the criminal mind, the mind of the con artist. We will be looking at The Grifters, uh, which has two titanic female performances from Angelica Houston and a very young Annette Benning. So so look forward to The Grifters in two weeks. Excited for The Grifters, Sean? I'm so excited for what I can only assume is a rollicking family comedy. Uh, okay. Um, I also have to say, um, here at Broad, Broad Appeal Central, we mostly watch movies, but we occasionally do read books, and we are so excited about our latest book purchase, which is what, Sean? Her Again. Her Again. If you don't know what Her Again is, and you're listening to this podcast, then Google it now, because it is a biography of Meryl Streep, not just Meryl Streep, Meryl Streep in the 70s, sort of from the period of her her adolescence through to, I think, like when she made Kramer vs. Kramer. Uh, it's written by friend of the podcast, Michael Shulman, New Yorker writer. I have begun reading it, and it has everything that any listener of this podcast would love. And obviously someone who deeply loves Meryl Streep. But also, like, really good writing. Like, how often do you get, like, you, you like finely detailed examinations of, like, interviews with Meryl Streep's, like, prom date, but then also, like, Michael just drops in the occasional wonderful vocab word, like, pellucid on page seven. <laughs> pellucid, everybody! He writes for The New Yorker. <laughs> you know. If you love actresses, and particularly Meryl, I think this is full of lots of juicy bits, just like the best of Tropicana. Uh... <sighs> Well, you didn't like that? That's fine. Leave it in. <laughs> okay. So before we go, we'll just say to you, if you like Broad Appeal, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or visit our website, broadappealpod.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter at broadappealpod. And we each have individual Twitter handles. I'm at Sean McGovern X and I'm at B.A. Mullen Speaks. We hope to see you again here at the Cocksucker Residence at 1-2 Pussy Way in two weeks' time. Wee! Wee! That's not it. It's wee! Wee! Can I do it? Yeah. Wee! Wee! That's not very good. No. Too gravelly. Too gravelly. You gotta, you gotta like, make it I'm lighter. I'm singing to the world. Wee! It's time we let the spirit come in.